Book six, chapters twenty through twenty two of On War, volumes two and three, by Carl von Clausewitz, translated by J. J. Graham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia. Chapter twenty A Defence of Swamps. Very large, wide swamps, such as the Bortang Moor in North Germany, are so uncommon that it is not worth while to lose time over them. But we must not forget that certain lowlands and marshy banks of small rivers are more common, and form very considerable obstacles of ground which may be, and often have been, used for defensive purposes. Measures for their defence are certainly very like those for the defence of rivers. At the same time, there are some peculiarities to be specially noticed. The first and principal one is that a marsh which, except on the causeway, is impracticable for infantry, is much more difficult to cross than any river. For in the first place, a causeway is not so soon built as a bridge. Secondly, there are no means at hand by which the troops to cover the construction of the dike or causeway can be sent across. No one would begin to build a bridge without using some of the boats to send over an advance guard in the first instance, but in the case of a morass, no similar assistance can be employed. The easiest way to make a crossing for infantry over a morass is by means of planks. But when the morass is of some width, this is a much more tedious process than the crossing of the first boats on a river. If now, besides, there is in the middle of the morass a river which cannot be passed without a bridge, the crossing of the first detachment of troops becomes a still more difficult affair, for although single passengers may get across on boards, the heavy material required for bridge-building cannot be so transported. This difficulty on many occasions may be insurmountable. A second peculiarity of a swamp is that the means used to cross cannot be completely removed like those used for passing a river. Bridges may be broken or so completely destroyed that they can never be used again. The most that can be done with dikes is to cut them, which is not doing much. If there is a river in the middle, the bridge can, of course, be taken away, but the whole passage will not by that means be destroyed in the same degree as that of a large river by the destruction of a bridge. The natural consequence is that dikes which exist must always be occupied in force and strenuously defended if we desire to derive any general advantage from the morass. On one hand, therefore, we are compelled to adopt a local defence, and on the other such a defence is favoured by the difficulty of passing at other parts. From these two peculiarities, the result is that the defence of a swamp must be more local and passive than that of a river. It follows from this that we must be stronger in a relative degree than in the direct defence of a river. Consequently, that the line of defence must not be of great length, especially in cultivated countries, where the number of passages, even under the most favourable circumstances for defence, is still very great. In this respect, therefore, swamps are inferior to great rivers, and this is a point of great importance for all local defence is illusory and dangerous to an extreme. But if we reflect that such swamps and low grounds generally have a breadth with which that of the greatest rivers in Europe bears no comparison, and that consequently a post stationed for the defence of a passage is never in danger of being overpowered by fire from the other side, that the effect of its own fire over a long, narrow dike is greatly increased, and that the time required to pass such a defile, perhaps a quarter or half a mile long, is much longer than would suffice to pass an ordinary bridge. If we consider all this, we must admit that such low lands and morasses, if means of crossing are not too numerous, belong to the strongest lines of defence which can be formed. An indirect defence, 
such as we made ourselves acquainted with in the case of streams and rivers, in which obstacles of ground are made use of to bring on a greater battle under advantageous circumstances, is generally quite as applicable to morasses. The third method of river defence, by means of a position on the enemy's side, would be too hazardous on account of the toilsome nature of the crossing. It is extremely dangerous to venture on the defence of such morasses, soft meadows, bogs, etc., as are not quite impassable beyond the dikes. One single line of crossing discovered by the enemy is sufficient to pierce the whole line of defence, which, in the case of a serious resistance, is always attended with great loss to the defender. B. Inundations Now we have still to consider inundations. As defensive means, and also as phenomena in the natural world, they have unquestionably the nearest resemblance to morasses. They are not common, certainly. Perhaps Holland is the only country in Europe where they constitute a phenomenon which makes them worth notice in connection with our object, but just that country, on account of the remarkable campaigns of 1672 and 1787, as well as on account of its important relation in itself to both France and Germany, obliges us to devote some consideration to this matter. The characteristic of these Dutch inundations differs from ordinary swampy and impassable wet lowlands in the following respects. 1. The soil itself is dry and consists either of dry meadows or of cultivated fields. 2. For purposes of irrigation or of drainage, a number of small ditches of greater or less depth and breadth intersect the country in such a way that they may be seen running in lines in parallel directions. 3. Larger canals enclosed by dikes and intended for irrigation, drainage and transit of vessels run through the country in all possible directions and are of such size that they can only be passed on bridges. For the level of the ground throughout the whole district, subject to inundation, lies perceptibly under the level of the sea, therefore, of course, under that of the canals. 5. The consequence of this is that, by means of cutting the dams, closing and opening the sluices, the whole country can be laid under water, so that there are no dry roads except on the tops of the dikes, all others being entirely under water, or at least so soaked that they become no longer fit for use. Now, if even the inundation is only three or four feet deep, so that perhaps for short distances it might be waded through, still even that is made impossible on account of the smaller ditches mentioned under number two, which are not visible. It is only where these ditches have a corresponding direction, so that we can move between two of them without crossing either, that the inundation does not constitute in effect an absolute bar to all communication. It is easy to conceive that this exception to the general obstruction can only be for short distances and therefore can only be used for tactical purposes of an entirely special character. From all this we deduce, one, that the assailant's means of moving are limited to a more or less small number of practicable lines which run along very narrow dikes and usually have a wet ditch on the right and left, consequently form very long defiles. 2. That every defensive preparation upon such a dam may be easily strengthened to such a degree as to become impregnable. 3. But that because the defensive is so hemmed in, he must confine himself to the most passive resistance as respects each isolated point, and consequently must look for his safety entirely from passive resistance. 4. That in such a country it is not a system of a single defensive line, closing the country like a simple barrier, but that as in every direction the same obstacle to movement exists, and the same security for flanks may be found, new posts may incessantly be formed, and in this manner any portion of the first defensive line, if lost, may be replaced by a new piece. 
we say that the number of combinations here, like those on a chessboard, are infinite. 5. But while this general condition of a country is only conceivable, along with the supposition of a high degree of cultivation and a dense population, it follows of itself that the number of passages, and therefore the number of posts required, or their defence, must be very great in comparison to other strategic dispositions, from which again we have as a consequence that such a defensive line must not be long. The principal line of defence in Holland is from Naden on the Zuiderzee, open bracket, the greater part of the way behind the Vecht, close bracket, to Gorkum on the Waal, that is properly to the Biesbach, its extent being about eight miles. For the defence of this line, a force of 25 to 30,000 was employed in 1672, and again in 1787. If we could reckon with certainty upon an invincible resistance, the results would certainly be very great, at least for the provinces of Holland lying behind that line. In 1672, the line actually withstood very superior forces, led by great generals, first Cond and afterwards Luxembourg, who had under their command 40 to 50,000 men, and yet would not assault, preferring to wait for the winter, which did not prove severe enough. On the other hand, the resistance, which was made on this first line in 1787, amounted to nothing, and even that which was made by a second line much shorter, between the Zuiderzee and the Lake of Harlem, although somewhat more effective, was overcome by the Duke of Brunswick in one day, through a very skilful tactical disposition, well adapted to the locality. And this, although the Prussian force actually engaged in the attack, was little, if at all, superior in numbers to the troops guarding the lines. The different result in the two cases is to be attributed to the difference in the supreme command. In the year 1672, the Dutch were surprised by Louis XIV, while everything was on a peace establishment, in which, as it is well known, they breathed very little military spirit as far as concerned land forces. For that reason, the greater number of the fortresses were deficient in all articles of material and equipment, garrisoned only by weak bodies of hired troops, and defended by governors who were either native-born incapables or treacherous foreigners. Thus, all the Brandenburg fortresses on the Rhine, garrisoned by the Dutch, as well as their own places situated to the east of the line of defence above described, except Groningen, very soon fell into the hands of the French, and for the most part without any real defence, and in the conquest of this great number of places consisted the chief exertions of the French army, 150,000 strong at that time. But when, after the murder of the brothers De Witt in August 1672, the Prince of Orange came to the head of affairs, bringing unity to the measures for national defence, there was still time to close the defensive line above mentioned, and all the measures then adopted harmonised so well with each other that neither Con nor Luxembourg, who commanded the French armies left in Holland after the departure of the two armies under Turenne and Louis in person, would venture to attempt anything against the separate posts. In the year 1787 all was different. It was not the Republic of Seven United Provinces, but only the province of Holland which had to resist the invasion. The conquest of all the fortresses, which had been the principal object in 1672, was therefore not the question. The defence was confined at once to the line we have described, but the assailant this time, instead of 150,000 men, had only 25,000, and was no mighty sovereign of a great country adjoining Holland, but the subordinate general of a distant prince himself by no means independent in many respects. The people in Holland, like those everywhere else at the time, were divided into two parties, but the republican spirit in Holland was decidedly predominant, and had at the same time attained even a kind of enthusiastic excitement. Under these circumstances, 
the resistance in the year 1787 ought to have ensured at least as great results as that of 1672. But there was one important difference, which is that in the year 1787, unity of command was entirely wanting. What in 1672 had been left to the wise, skilful, and energetic guidance of the Prince of Orange was entrusted to a so-called Defence Commission in 1787, which, although it included in its number men of energy, was not in a position to infuse into its work the requisite unity of measures, and to inspire others with that confidence which was wanted to prevent the whole instrument from proving imperfect and inefficient in use. We have dwelt for a moment on this example in order to give more distinctness to the conception of this defensive measure, and at the same time to show the difference in the effects produced according as more or less unity and sequence prevail in the direction of the whole. Although the organisation and method of defence of such a defensive line are tactical subjects, still in connection with the latter, which is the nearest allied to strategy, we cannot omit to make an observation to which the campaign of 1787 gives occasion. We think, namely, that however passive the defence must naturally be at each point in a line of this kind, still an offensive action from some one point of the line is not impossible, and may not be unproductive of good results if the enemy, as was the case in 1787, is not decidedly very superior. For although such an attack must be executed by means of dikes, and on that account cannot certainly have the advantage of much freedom of movement or of any great impulsive force, Nevertheless, it is impossible for the offensive side to occupy all the dikes and roads which he does not require for his own purposes, and therefore the defensive, with his better knowledge of the country, and being in possession of the strong points, should be able, by some of the unoccupied dikes, to effect a real flank attack against the columns of the assailant, or to cut them off from their sources of supply. If, now on the other hand, we reflect for a moment on the constrained position in which the assailant is placed, how much more dependent is he on his communications than in almost any other conceivable case? We may well imagine that every sally on the part of the defensive side, which has the remotest possibility of success, must at once, as a demonstration, be most effective. We doubt very much if the prudent and cautious Duke of Brunswick would have ventured to approach Amsterdam if the Dutch had only made such a demonstration from Utrecht, for instance. End of chapter 20 Chapter 21. Defence of Forests. Above all things, we must distinguish thick, tangled, and impassable forests from extensive woods under a certain degree of culture, which are partly quite clear, partly intersected by numerous roads. Whenever the object is to form a defensive line, the latter should be left in rear or avoided as much as possible. The defensive requires more than the assailant to see clearly around him, partly because, as a rule, he is the weaker, partly because the natural advantages of his position cause him to develop his plans later than the assailant. If he should place a woody district before him, he would be fighting like a blind man against one with his eyesight. If he should place himself in the middle of the wood, then both would be blind. But that equality of condition is just what would not answer the natural requirements of the defender. Such a wooded country can, therefore, not be brought into any favourable connection with the defensive, except it is kept in rear of the defender's army, so as to conceal from the enemy all that takes place behind the army, and at the same time to be available as an assistance to cover and facilitate the retreat. At present we only speak of forests in level country, for where the decided mountain character enters into combination, its influence becomes predominant over tactical and strategic measures, 
and we have already treated of those subjects elsewhere but impassable forests that is such as can only be traversed on certain roads afford advantages in an indirect defence similar to those which the defence derives from mountains for bringing on a battle under favourable circumstances the army can await the enemy behind the wood in a more or less concentrated position with a view to falling on him the moment he debouches from the road defiles such a forest resembles a mountain in its effects more than a river for it affords it is true only one very long and difficult defile but it is in respect to the retreat rather advantageous than otherwise but a direct defence of forests let them be ever so impracticable is a very hazardous piece of work for even the thinnest chain of outposts for abattis are only imaginary barriers and no wood is so completely impassable that it cannot be penetrated in a hundred places by small detachments and these in their relation to a chain of defensive posts may be likened to the first drops of water which ooze through a roof and are soon followed by a general rush of water much more important is the influence of great forests of every kind in connection with the arming of a nation they are undoubtedly the true element for such levies if therefore the strategic plan of defence can be so arranged that the enemy's communications pass through great forests then by that means another mighty lever is brought into use in support of the work of defence end of chapter twenty one chapter twenty two the cordon the term cordon is used to denote every defensive plan which is intended directly to cover a whole district of country by a line of posts in connection with each other we say directly for several corps of an army posted in line with each other might protect a large district of country from invasion without forming a cordon but then this protection would not be direct but through the effect of combinations and movements it is evident at a glance that such a long defensive line as that must be which is to cover an extensive district of country directly can only have a very small degree of defensive stamina even when very large bodies of troops occupy the lines this would be the case if they were attacked by corresponding masses the object of a cordon can therefore only be to resist a weak blow whether that weakness proceeds from a feeble will or the smallness of the force employed with this view the wall of china was built a protection against the inroads of tartars this is the intention of all lines and frontier defences of the european states bordering on asia and turkey applied in this way the cordon system is neither absurd nor does it appear unsuitable to its purpose certainly it is not sufficient to stop all inroads but it will make them more difficult and therefore of less frequent occurrence and this is a point of considerable importance where relations subsist with people like those of asia whose passions and habits have a perpetual tendency to war next to this class of cordons comes the lines which in the wars of modern times have been formed between european states such as the french lines on the rhine and in the netherlands these were originally formed only with a view to protect a country against inroads made for the purpose of levying contributions or living at the expense of the enemy they are therefore only intended to check minor operations and consequently it is also meant that they should be defended by small bodies of troops but of course in the event of the enemy's principal force taking its direction against these lines the defender must also use his principal force in their defence an event by no means conducive to the best defensive arrangements on account of this disadvantage and because the protection against incursions in temporary war is quite a minor object by which through the very existence of these lines an excessive expenditure of troops may easily be caused their formation is looked upon in our day as a pernicious measure the more power and energy thrown into the prosecution of the war the more useless and dangerous 
this means becomes. Lastly, all very extended lines of outposts covering the quarters of an army and intended to offer a certain amount of resistance come under the head of cordons. This defensive measure is chiefly designed as an impediment to raids and other such minor expeditions directed against single cantonments, and for this purpose it may be quite sufficient if favoured by the country. Against an advance of the main body of the enemy, the opposition offered can only be relative, that is, intended to gain time. But as this gain of time will be but inconsiderable in most cases, this object may be regarded as a very minor consideration in the establishment of these lines. The assembling and advance of the enemy's army itself can never take place so unobservedly that the defender gets his first information of it through his outposts. When such is the case, he is much to be pitied. Consequently, in this case also, the cordon is only intended to resist the attack of a weak force, and the object, therefore, in this and in the other two cases, is not at variance with the means. But that an army formed for the defence of a country should spread itself out in a long line of defensive posts opposite to the enemy, that it should disperse itself in a cordon form, seems to be so absurd that we must seek to discover the circumstances and motives which lead to and accompany such a proceeding. Every position in a mountainous country, even if taken up with the view of a battle, with the whole force united, is and must necessarily be more extended than a position in a level country. It may be because the aid of the ground augments very much the force of the resistance. It must be because a wider basis of retreat is required, as we have shown in the chapter on mountain defences. But if there is no near prospect of a battle, if it remains probable that the enemy will remain in his position opposite us for some time without undertaking anything unless tempted by some very favourable opportunity which may present itself, open bracket, the usual state of things in most wars formerly, close bracket, then it is also natural not to limit ourselves merely to the occupation of so much country as is absolutely necessary, but to hold as much right or left as is consistent with the security of the army, by which we obtain many advantages, as we shall presently show. In open countries with plenty of communications, this object may be effected to a greater extent than in mountains, through the principle of movement, and for that reason the extension and dispersion of the troops is less necessary in an open country. It would also be much more dangerous there on account of the inferior capability of resistance of each part. But in mountains, where all occupation of ground is more dependent on local defence, where relief cannot so soon be afforded to a point menaced, and where... When once the enemy has got possession of a point, it is more difficult to dislodge him by a force slightly superior. In mountains under these circumstances, we shall always come to a form of position which, if not strictly speaking a cordon, still approaches very near to it, being a line of defensive posts. From such a disposition, consisting of several detached posts, to the cordon system there is still certainly a considerable step, but it is one which generals nevertheless often take without being aware of it, being drawn on from one step to another. First, the covering and possession of the country is the object of the disposition. Afterwards, it is the security of the army itself. Every commander of a post calculates the advantage which may be derived from this or that point connected with the approach to his position on the right or left, and thus the whole progresses insensibly from one degree of subdivision to another. A cordon war, therefore, carried on by the principal force of an army is not to be considered a form of war designedly chosen with a view to stopping every blow which the enemy's forces might attempt, but a situation which the army is drawn into in the pursuit of a very different object, namely the holding and covering the country against an enemy who has no decisive undertaking in view.
such a situation must always be looked upon as a mistake and the motives through which generals have been lured by degrees into allowing one small post after another are contemptible in connection with the object of a large army this point of view shows at all events the possibility of such a mistake that it is really an error namely a mistaken appreciation of our own position and that of the enemy is sometimes not observed and it is spoken of as an erroneous system but this same system when it is pursued with advantage or at all events without causing damage is quietly approved every one praises the faultless campaigns of prince henry in the seven years war because they have been pronounced so by the king although these campaigns exhibit the most decided and most incomprehensible examples of chains of posts so extended that they may just with as much propriety be called cordons as any that ever were we may completely justify these positions by saying the prince knew his opponent he knew that he had no enterprises of a decisive character to apprehend from that quarter and as the object of his position besides was to occupy always as much territory as possible he therefore carried out that object as far as circumstances in any way permitted if the prince had once been unfortunate with one of these cobwebs and had met with a severe loss we should not say that he pursued a faulty system of warfare but that he had been mistaken about a measure and had applied it to a case to which it was not suited while we seek thus to explain how the cordon system as it is called may be resorted to by the principal force in a theatre of war and how it may even be a judicious and useful measure and therefore far from being an absurdity we must at the same time acknowledge that there appear to have been instances where generals or their staff have overlooked the real meaning or object of a cordon system and assumed its relative value to be a general one conceiving it to be really suited to afford protection against every kind of attack instances therefore where there was no mistaken application of the measure but a complete misunderstanding of its nature we shall further allow that this very absurdity amongst others seems to have taken place in the defence of vosges by the austrian and prussian armies in seventeen ninety three and seventeen ninety four end of chapter twenty two recording by timothy ferguson gold coast australia